When I was working with teenagers, we had this young, probably early high school student. He came to know Christ through, through the preaching of the gospel, and we, we gave him a Bible, and he began to read the Bible. I'm not sure where he picked up on. Maybe he started in Genesis. I don't know, but he was reading it with a, with a pretty good clip, and he came to me a, a few weeks after coming to Christ, a few weeks after starting to read his Bible, and he asked this question, how does this thing end anyways? And that's a really good question. And I love the question for lots of reasons because this kid had actually, he hadn't kind of grown up in a a religious environment where he had kind of thought that the Bible was just a self-help book. He just kind of began to read the Bible and realized that it's the true story of what God is doing in the world from beginning to end. The story of the Bible is sometimes summed up in these four words, creation, Fall, redemption, and consummation. Right? If you want to think about the overarching storyline of the Bible, we have creation, the eternal God who is holy and righteous and good, and He is just. He created all that exists, the entire universe, with the authority of His voice. He creates it, including man, who He creates uniquely and specially in His image to reflect His character and to reflect His glory. Then you have the fall. Instead of man using their God-given capacities to worship and to glorify God and to love others, they used these capacities to rebel against God and therefore entered into spiritual death and physical death came upon this world. And all, all the bad things that happened in this world flood creation as a result of the fall of man. But God sent His Son, the third word, redemption. God sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to take the curse of sin on Himself who, for all those who would rely on Him, to throw your full weight on Him and say, there's nothing in me that can save myself. I'm trusting fully in the work of Jesus Christ. And the fourth word is consummation. Jesus returns to judge the world, to establish His kingdom, and eventually usher in this new heavens and the new earth following the kingdom. The passage that we have then before us is a reminder that God is orchestrating history and He's moving history towards this end, towards His appointed end. All right, we mentioned earlier that this is part two of a, of a larger passage. So let's just, let's just try to get the whole text in our brain so that when we kind of focus in on verses 25 through the end of the chapter, we know where we're at. We looked at last week, the disciples came and and, uh, you know, Jesus had predicted that this temple, this beautiful structure, it represented the center of religious life for Israel. It represented the presence, the very presence of God. And Jesus said that temple is going to be overthrown. And uh, the disciples naturally asked, well, when, when will that happen? And what are the signs that we can know it's happening? And Jesus began by answering sort of the question they didn't ask. Well, let me tell you what are not the signs. Don't look at these things as the signs that the destruction of the temple is coming. He mentioned false messiahs, wars, famines, signs from heaven, and persecutions. Right, And we should just say this quickly as we, as we kind of keep this in mind. We, we've been saying this, this overthrow of Jerusalem becomes a type of the judgment that will fall on the world. All right, So Luke seems to specifically focus more on kind of the near fulfillment of this judgment that's going to fall on Israel. If you read the other gospel accounts, it seems like they're looking forward to this worldwide judgment that falls on the world. All right, but let's, we're in Luke, so let's follow Luke. Okay, 
70 AD, this, this destruction's coming. There's going to be false messiahs, wars. These are not the signs of the end. In verse 20, Jesus gets around to, to answering the question that was asked. He says, you know, you want to know, again, this is me being sarcastic, but you want to know the sign that Jerusalem's about to fall? It's when all the armies are surrounding Jerusalem. In other words, it's just too late at that point. The judgment has arrived. And this will be a terrible time of suffering, and it was for Israel. The temple fell in 70 AD. It was a terrible time of suffering for Israel. In verse 24, Jesus says this, this led to this, this time then that, that Israel will be trodden underfoot until, he says there at the end of verse 24, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So you've got the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. We argued last week sort of this unspecified amount of time of Gentile domination where we said the gospel, during this time the gospel goes out to the nations. God is calling to himself during this church age of people for himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But then we get to verse 25, and again, it seems like the, the emphasis shifts from just Israel, Jerusalem, to the whole world. This is what is coming on the world. And then beginning in verse 29, it's now believe it. And in verse uh, 34 and following, live in light of it. All right, so that's what we're going to take up. Verse 25 through 38. All right. So the first point is this. The Son of Man produces either terror or hope based on how you are related to Him. Okay, the Son of Man, when He comes, produces either terror or hope based on how you relate to Him. Again, I argued that the, the emphasis seems to, to shift from just Israel, this people, to the whole world. We see that in the middle of verse 25. This is, uh, on the earth there's distress of nations and perplexity. You see it also down in verse 35, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So it seems as if it's, it's not the, the tribulations or the trials that Jesus spoke about earlier in this text. It's not just focused on Israel. It seems that the nations as a whole are, are in view here. The whole world seems to be in view. So this switch from focus on Israel, 70 A.D., temple to all those who dwell on the earth seems to indicate that Jesus is kind of looking forward to a future event, not, not just suggesting that all this was fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. We've been arguing since last week that, that Jesus seems to kind of take up these two issues together in his Olivet Discourse, that, they're, they're, that he sort of takes up the end of the temple and the end of the world, so to speak, and deals with them in a similar, in a similar way. We, we argued this, that the fall of Jerusalem becomes a picture of the, the end of the world, the judgment that falls on the world. Okay, Matthew says it this way, For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. So again, it seems like there's something coming that we haven't quite experienced yet. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming on, on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So 
I'm just trying to establish the point that I think in verse 25, we're looking forward even from our vantage point today. It says, prior to this return of Christ, the nations will be perplexed. The nations will be perplexed. The idea is that they will be filled with uncertainty as to what is coming. In other words, they'll be, they'll be at a loss. They won't know what is happening to this world, but they know it's bad, right? That's the idea of foreboding in verse 25. They're sort of like, I don't understand fully what's going on, but I know that it's bad. And creation itself, Jesus says here, signals God's coming judgment. The sky and the sea roar. The powers of the, heaven will, the heavens will be shaken. And this, again, it creates great fear and panic across the nations. Right, That word fainting, literally, people will faint with fear. It, means, it literally means to stop breathing. You know, We might say it in our vernacular, people will be scared to death. They'll understand that something very foreboding is coming. And so the, 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 the judgment that fell on Israel is pointing to a much larger, much more significant judgment, a final judgment on the nations in which no one can escape. Right, and we, we use that word terror in, in the point, and we, we did that on, on purpose. Right? Because this is a, it, the, the author of Hebrews actually says this it's a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living, living God. And we can wrestle with this. Right? Because we don't like the idea, well, if we're, not, if we're not thinking right, we don't like the idea of judgment. And if we, if we kind of react against us, say, my God wouldn't do that. My God would never judge anybody. My God would never be filled with wrath. I think what, what we have then is just a failure to, to understand God, and it's a failure to understand our, ourselves. I was trying to tease this out in men's Bible study not too long ago, and I, this kind of picture came to my mind that if someone really sinned against your, a family member that you love, violence, you know, they hurt your child or they hurt your grandma or your grandpa or your mom or your dad. And that person is found guilty in the court of law. And in that few seconds that they get to speak to the court and maybe even address the family that they've sinned against, they get up and they say, you know what, I am guilty. I did do this crime. But you know what, I just want you to place it in perspective with all the great things that I've done in my life. Right Again, if, if you're the one that's been sinned against, if you're the one that's been victimized or someone that you love has been victimized, then there's no other conclusion in that moment than to say, you just don't get what you did if you think the good things sort of can outweigh the bad that you did. You don't understand the full weight of your offense. You're taking such a light view of your crime that not only can I not take it seriously, but... I've actually been provoked to anger in that moment. We might say it's similar. It's similarly offensive when we presume and we treat our sin this way. My sin does not deserve judgment and wrath because if you just weigh it against all the good things I've done, we fail to misunderstand God's holiness and His righteousness and His just wrath. And we've also failed to come to grips with the reality of our own son. So we see this, the climax of this terror 
is seeing the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory. See that there in verse 27. Now we just sang about the Son of Man. Jesus has already referred to himself as the Son of Man earlier in Luke when he healed the paralytic. In the book of Acts, if you remember, while Stephen's being stoned to death, he looks up and who does he see standing at the right hand of the Father? He sees the Son of Man. And I would argue, you know, that title does, in a sense, speak to Jesus' humanity, that He is both Son of God and Son of Man, and that's kind of the meaning that we, we understood in that song that we just sang. But it's actually, it's more than that. Okay, the title Son of Man is, is actually a, a title that's used earlier in the Bible. Back in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says this, I saw in the night visions, and this is, this is Daniel, seeing a vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus uses this title, Son of Man, to apply to himself or to talk about the coming of the Son of Man, I think his audience, his Jewish audience, would have in mind this text in Daniel chapter 7, what's true of the Son of Man, that he is given power and glory and a great kingdom. They would be one, who, who is this Son of Man who can approach the Ancient of Days? Who is this? Who is this? This human-like figure, a Son of Man, who can approach the Ancient of Days and be given an everlasting dominion. Who is it? Well, it's only Jesus, right? The, the incarnated Son of God, the God-Man. Son of God and Son of Man. And we even notice the, the overlapping language from Daniel 7 to our text. In Daniel 7, he came in clouds. In our text, the Son of Man comes with the clouds of heaven. And he comes in great power and glory in both texts. So we see that in Jesus' description here. It's the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. You know, that idea of sort of coming on the clouds, riding on the clouds, it's a picture of deity. It represents the majesty and the sovereignty of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. He will return to earth. Remember in, in Acts 1.11, when Jesus, or Acts 1, when Jesus ascends in a cloud, and the disciples are staring up, and the angel says, I don't know why you're staring up. He's going to come back in the same way he left on a cloud. So he will return to earth the same way he departed. Coming in the clouds, I would say also is a, an indication that this will be universally witnessed or, or you, we might say unmistakably plain. It's consistent with Revelation 1.7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and what? Every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. Again, it just seems to be a, a description of something more than what took place at the dest destruction of the temple. 
So if, if, we're, if we're right, that, you know, this coming in the clouds, it's, it's unmistakably plain, then we'll, we made this point last week. I was kind of borrowing from this, this text. Nobody will need to wonder or whisper if Jesus has returned. You can pay zero attention to any cult leader, whoever says he's the second coming of Messiah. Trust me, when Jesus comes back, it's not going to be a hundred people in a compound in Waco, Texas. Every eye will see him. He will be coming in great power and glory. It's not going to be some guy that can convince a few people that he's the, the advent. So before we move on then, notice that for many, this will be a time of terrible realization that Jesus is Lord and that they have spent their entire lives walking in defiance to Him. But not not for all. right? For others, this is a time of redemption. It is a time of victory, vindication. I would say that's speaking to those who have just come to Jesus in simple faith trusting in His work. And those who can look forward to His coming again, they don't have to be afraid of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. I would argue the the redemption here that that is talking about is not necessarily redemption from sin's penalty, as that's already been paid for and applied to every believer. If you're trusting in Christ this morning, your sins are as far from you as the east is from the west. You've been credited with the very righteousness of Christ. I would say it's redemption from this fallen world, this sin-cursed world that Gary prayed about earlier. So Jesus is returning as a time of foreboding for some and a time of redemption for others. Let's look at point number two this morning. You can rely on Jesus' words about His return. You can rely on Jesus' words. Verse 29, And He told them a parable, Look at the fig tree, and all the trees, as soon as they come out leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already here. So in response to his teaching, he uses a fig tree to make a point. Fig trees were all over Israel. They're all over the, the, the Mount of Olives there. And the fig trees would be some of the first to kind of leaf out in, in summer and spring. right? And here we might, we might look at the aspen trees. And say, you know, when those leaf out, we know that summer's here. It's like going to be July almost in the Black Hills. But I thought all the aspen trees were dead when I got here. I'm like, I guess they all died. Um, because it was like June and there's no leaves anywhere. And I thought, well, that's a bummer. All right. Forget that. Jesus applies it this way. He says the, the, the sign of, of the fig trees that are kind of indicating that, that summer has arrived, that's easily discernible, right? And so similar to what we just said, the sign of the return of Christ, again, will be easily discernible. Right? So he says when these things begin to happen, right, verse um, 30 there, or 31. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. The question is, what does Jesus mean by these things? Okay, when these things begin to take place, what, what does Jesus mean? 
I would suggest he's probably arguing about the things he just talked about. The most recent things that he just talked about. The signs and the moon and the stars and the distress on earth, the fear of nations, people fainting with fear, Jesus on the clouds, coming back in great power and glory. Here's what I think Jesus' point is. When Jesus answered the question about the signs that are preceding the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., he said the sign will be when the armies are around it and there's just, it's again, the point was it's too late. Don't look for signs. Don't try to figure out a timeline and try to get right before the Lord, right before the destruction comes. No, when the army's surrounding, you'll know the destruction's here. It'd be too late. And I think he's making a similar point here with the coming of the Son of Man. One of the points that Jesus has been making with the destruction of the temple is that when, when judgment falls, it falls quickly and suddenly. When judgment falls, it falls quickly and suddenly. And I think that's what he's saying here. When you see these things, when you see Jesus on the clouds, it's here. It's too late if you've been walking in unbelief. We saw in Luke chapter 12 that Jesus' return comes like a thief in the night. It's not, a, it's not on the Google calendar. It comes when it's not expected. Again, I think what Jesus is saying, what are the signs? How can, we, how can we know? It's not trials. It's not suffering. It's not persecution. Instead, it'd be cosmic signs where the sun gets turned off, the stars fall, Jesus on a cloud, returning to judge the world. In other words, it comes quickly and unexpectedly, and it's too late to react at that point. Jesus does not busy himself with helping us pinpoint a date on the calendar because no one knows the day nor the hour. Instead, he teaches us that the events surrounding his coming could occur at any moment. I think that's what he meant back up in verse 28. He says, your, your redemption is drawing near. It's, it's imminent. It's close. It could happen at any moment. Upon this coming in the clouds and great power and glory, what, what follows? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is going to come back to consummate the kingdom on earth. Right? We've been talking about the kingdom because there's places where Jesus talks about it as something future, and there's places where he says the kingdom of God is here, it's in your midst. And we argued that he, he inaugurates the kingdom in his first coming, but he consummates and establishes it here in his second coming. When the Son of Man comes, he consummates his kingdom. And Daniel, back in Daniel chapter 7, again, sort of, we're arguing parallel text, when when he sort of interprets this vision that he had of one like a son of man coming to the ancient of days, receiving this kingdom, he, he interprets the dream in verse 27, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. The Son of Man is given this kingdom, and he rules and reigns with his people. I think Jesus, again, makes a similar point that we've been arguing there in verse 32. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Again, I think he's arguing for the, the, the quickness with which Jesus arrives. 
Right? So we've got to wrestle with this, right? Because there's, there's a hardship in the text. This generation will not pass away till all has taken place. Now, some understand this to be, you know, the generation that Jesus is addressing. He's talking to the disciples. All this will happen before your generation passes away. That would mean that then sort of the coming of the Son of Man is apocalyptic or metaphorical language for what fell on Jerusalem. The Son of Man, Jesus is coming. He's going to visit judgment on Israel. That's, that's happened. So Jesus' words here are fulfilled. But we've been arguing that, that this seems to be describing a different event than just the destruction of Jerusalem. This seems to be talking about something we haven't yet experienced yet. So I think in context, as, as the passage develops, he's talking about these signs that will accommodate the return of Christ, and he's saying, now this generation will not pass away until all these th- things are fulfilled. I think it's best to take this to be the generation that sees the signs will not pass away. Right? The generation that sees the cosmic uh, signs in heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying, these, these events proceed quickly. It's not like the times of the Gentiles that encompasses all these different generations, generations we've been in this time for a long season. I think he's pointing that things proceed quickly. There's not multiple generations sort of associated with these events surrounding Jesus' return. The point of the paragraph, though, as we kind of wrestle even with these intricacies, these difficulties, these hardships in the text, the point of the paragraph, I think, in verses 20, uh, yeah, 29 through 33, is that you can be certain of the words of Christ. You, you, you can know, he says, that the kingdom of God is near. And he ends verse 33 with an assurance. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Right? As, as hard as some of those things are in the text to figure out and discern, the point is this, you can rely on the words of Christ. You can trust the words of Jesus. He's arguing that creation is less permanent than his authoritative instruction and teaching. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. as we think about this this coming judgment. We can be assured that this will come to pass. The same way Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem, and it came to pass. The same way we can look at His words of things that are yet future, the things that He's promised to come, the things that He's described, we can know that they will come to pass. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the words of Christ will not pass away. We can have as, as much confidence in His words about the destruction of the temple as we can about His coming consummation of the kingdom at His triumphant return. And this is, this is true not only because Jesus is trustworthy, not only because you know, He has inside information, because He's the second person of the Trinity, it's true because Jesus is orchestrating history to bring about its end. He is exercising his providential control. I was talking with Vern before church, and we're saying, man, it's so easy to look back and see God's providence. We we, we need encouragement to see it in the present, and we need encouragement to to trust it with the future. He's orchestrating history according to his will. 
So we saw verses 25 through 28 point out the facts of the Lord's return. Verses 29 to 33 gave us confidence to believe it. And now the rest of the passage tells us how to live in light of it. How to live in light of it. Look there in verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and the day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Okay, so last week and some today, we kind of poked, poked fun a little bit at, at those who want to kind of pinpoint the day of Christ's return. All right, we've had some good-natured fun there. Um, but there's an equal and opposite error that I think we want to avoid, which is sort of dismissing the importance of this topic. Right, Just saying, well, because people have sort of over-responded, they get so caught up in the newspapers, the headlines, fulfilled prophecy. You know, honestly, this would be like my temptations want to swing all the way over here and be like, ah, whatever, it'll work out. But I don't think we get that, that option here. We, we're called to live in light of the return of Christ. The answer is not to so overreact that we dismiss it's important. What matters is today. Well, Jesus here tells us we live differently when we're thinking rightly about Christ. Jesus takes these truths about His future return and He explains to us how it ought to drive our attitudes and our actions today. He begins by warning the disciples there to watch themselves. That is, to not grow careless. To be on guard to take heed to His words, to consider what, what this means, that the Son of Man coming in great power and glory, consider what this means for, for you and for the world. And so Christians should live in anticipation. Live in anticipation that Christ is coming to gather His people, will re return with Him in glory, rule and reign with Him, don't believe the lie that, 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 that makes no difference for today. So why should we be concerned with watching ourselves? Well, Jesus says there's this temptation to grow insensitive to, to the return of Christ by being drawn away through intoxication, through really I think it's kind of metaphor by being desensitized by the cares of this world desensitized by the present. If you don't watch yourself, Jesus says, you'll become weighed down. You'll become insensitive and become convinced that this truth makes no difference for how you live today. Right? The idea is don't give yourself over to unbridled indulgence, excessive drinking, be drawn away by the present, by the allure of this world, by the temptations that we face. And I think the bigger warning is some, right, some by their behavior will indicate that they're not prepared for that day. Some will indicate by their behavior that they're not prepared to meet the Lord. And here's what I think that means. A person who's just totally calloused to the return of Christ is in a dangerous spot. They may not know, they may be indicating through their, the fruit of their lives they don't know the Lord. 
It's also, I think, a warning that don't assume you have time. Don't assume you have time. You know, Augustine, before he came to Christ, famously prayed, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Right? He wanted, he just, he wanted to time it out. Lord, let me have my fun. Let me indulge the cares of this world. Let me indulge the passions of my flesh. Let me just enjoy this world for a little while. Then I'll come to Christ. And, you know, by God's grace, Augustine did. But that's a dangerous attitude. Right? It's a dangerous attitude to assume that we can live our life our way, and one day I'll just figure it out. Maybe when I'm on my deathbed, I'll figure it out. Or maybe when I hear the trumpet sounds, I'll say the sinner's prayer real fast. That's a dangerous attitude. We aren't guaranteed that moment. We've already seen that he comes suddenly. And Jesus uses this imagery of a trap closing in verse 34. For many, they will be caught unprepared, like a, like a trap that sort of snaps shut on them, and there will be no escape. There'll be no escape. As we've seen, we, we, we see there in verse 34, this judgment comes upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So some tend to, I would say, embarrass themselves. Again, I don't want to be rude or unbecoming, but embarrass themselves with blood moons and trying to figure out who the Antichrist is and all these, pick a date, 88 reasons, Jesus is returning in 1988, whatever. But I'm saying we are foolish if we react the other way and say this doesn't matter. One of my mentors would often quote uh, C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Right? The truth of, of this return of Christ is meant to impact the way we live for Christ Today, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So we are to be on guard and not be lulled to sleep by the cares of this world, not, not be convinced by the arguments of the mockers in Second Peter who say, oh yeah, Jesus said he's coming back, but it's been so long. Like The world just kind of keeps going the way it's always been going. We're to stay vigilant, to take heed. And Jesus says also we're to be on guard. To be on guard, and we are to stay awake there in verse 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This is, staying awake is, is a constant, vigilant expectation. To be alert at all times. Again, since no one knows the day nor the hour. We're called in, uh, I think it's 1 Thessalonians 1, 10. We are called to wait for this coming. We wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Staying awake means, Jesus says really clearly, He just like described, okay, well, what does it mean to stay awake? Well, being strengthened in prayer. It means being vigilant in prayer. And when we go to the Lord in prayer, we are admitting that, that we actually need the strength from Him to kind of bear up under the trials and pressures and persecutions that we talked about last week. 
Christians are not spared from suffering. Christians are not spared from suffering. What we're spared from is wrath. You're not destined for wrath, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. You're not destined for wrath. You've been spared from that. But in the meantime, we've got the suffering that comes on us, these persecutions, these hardships, these tribulations, these trials. And we need to pray that God would strengthen us to endure these for His glory, to, to strengthen our faith, to maintain our faith in the midst of these things that, that have... Okay, so I guess you could say it this way. When, when Peter says that Satan roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I think what he's saying, he uses persecution to try to destroy the faith. Right? We need to pray that God would strengthen us so we would not allow our faith to be shaken or, or destroyed by the coming sufferings or persecutions. So we need to pray. This sort of reliance on God, right? it's not the... It's not the cause, it's not the base level cause for how we can do what, what Jesus says here at the end, and to stand before the Son of Man. Our, being, uh, our perseverance is not like, because you've done this, you receive the reward. Instead, our perseverance, our prayer, our trust in the Lord, our, our, the, the Holy Spirit strengthening us and maintaining our faith is the evidence that God has worked in us real salvation, genuine salvation, and therefore we will be standing before the Son of Man. God has promised to persevere the faith of those who belong to Him. If you are in Christ, He will not allow you to stumble as to fall. Right? You might have a failure of will the way Peter did, but if you're in Christ, if you're truly in Christ, you will not have a total abandonment of Christ the way Judas did. So he, he perseveres the faith of his saints, but God uses means to accomplish his, his will. And one of the means that he uses is the prayers of his saints to be strengthened so that they wouldn't fall away, so they wouldn't deny Christ. So we need to pray for strength to endure temptation until the end that we may stand before the Son of Man. So why not, why not add that to the prayer list this week? Lord, reveal any way in me that my heart is growing insensitive. Lord, reveal in me any way that my love is growing cold. That's what, that's what Matthew says. The love of many will grow cold. Lord, examine me. Am I growing cold in my love? Are the cares of this world dragging me away in ways that I can't even clearly perceive? Lord, reveal those things to me. And the Lord may very well use uh, one of your brothers or sisters in Christ, one of your fellow church members, to kind of point this out. So don't get mad at them if the answer to your request is somebody saying, hey, I've noticed your love is growing cold. All right? So... Lord, reveal this to me. Lord, strengthen me up to bear underneath these trials and persecutions that come with living life in a fallen world. Or God, may you grant that I persevere for your glory and that I might long for the return of Christ, confident in him that I might stand before the Son of Man. We should be praying these ways. We'll, we'll end with this. I've 
told you before about when I was on road trips in college and, you know, I'd be uh, kind of just staring out the window, looking up in the clouds, wondering like if, if right now was like first that's four, right? The dead in Christ will rise first and those who remain. Will, if that was, I would wonder what would happen to me. And honestly, at that time, I was so unsure of my salvation, I thought, I don't think either way would surprise me. If that trumpet sounded and the dead in Christ were raised first, what would happen to me? I wonder what kind of reaction that causes in you as you think about these events. Are you afraid? Are you expectant, even, even hopeful? I think the call of the text is each of us must examine ourselves. We've seen this morning that for those who are outside of Christ, those who have rejected Him and His offer of salvation, this is a terrifying moment. Examine your heart. There's a universal judgment that's inescapable. For me, I think I, think I did know the Lord. I think I did know the Lord at that moment but I did not fully understand and grasp the fullness of the love of God. I lacked assurance because I wasn't focused on Christ. I was focused on myself. Can I mean the sinner's prayer more today than I meant it yesterday? I'd prayed it a thousand times. Maybe I can mean it more. I would learn something about the Bible and I'd say, well, maybe I needed to know that before I could truly trust in Christ. Maybe I needed more information Maybe I needed more sincerity. Maybe I needed more faith, and, and I can have it today. And, and, and I realized, man, I, by God's grace, he took me to Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not because I really meant it when I prayed a prayer, but because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. I realized I have no assurance whatsoever because I'm focused so much on myself and what I can do and what I can say and what I can pray that I would made it so little about Christ. I realized I was afraid of the return of Christ because I didn't understand 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The reality is it wasn't about me. I just had failed to fully understand and comprehend the gospel. That Christ became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That His death on the cross was Him taking the full fury of the punishment that I was so afraid of. I was so afraid because I didn't see that Christ had taken it all on my behalf. And when that message hits home, the message of the gospel, the work of Christ, when it gets home, terror gives way to to expectation. Terror gives way to longing. Terror gives way to hope. You can look forward and be comforted by the certainty of Jesus' return and the establishment of His kingdom. Because the Son of God became the Son of Man. Because the triumphant Son of Man is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Because of that, you and I can have great hope and joy in the light of these words. And in light of the words that Gary read to us this morning, we can look up 
We can look up and say, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the gospel by which we are saved. Lord, I pray that you would open eyes to see the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give a greater confidence in the gospel. That we would be so convinced that Jesus has taken every ounce of wrath on our behalf, that we would just be longing to be with them, that we would indeed do what your word says we can do. We can look forward to that day and we can comfort one another with the, one another with these words because we will always be with you. We long for that in Jesus' name. Amen.